0: The conservatorship has worked out as we had hoped and this is just a, a very strong statement of support and it's a very strong statement of support for the housing market. <laughs>
1: Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson.
2: And I'm Laura Conaway. Today is Tuesday, November 25th. It's about 1.53 p.m. on the East Coast. We're going to continue our series on what is money today. That's and our
1: theme of the week.
2: That's the theme of the week. We're also going to make an economist house call to a pastor trying to do a pledge drive. First, though, Adam, we have $800 billion new dollars to talk about.
1: Yeah, it's... Uh... Another day, another historic transformation of the U.S. Uh, financial system. Uh, we today learned about the TALF, the term Asset Backed Securities Loan Facility, <laughs> the TALF. Not um, from outer space, no. Yeah, so so the TALF solves a problem that uh, Henry Paulson identified as, as as a major growing problem, which is the inability of regular old consumers—forget about big, hungry, massive banks—regular old consumers to get money to for student loans, for car loans, to, you know, build fix that old porch that's been broken. Uh, um, this comes, the overall breakdown in, in the financial system over the last couple months has meant that it's very hard for uh, these loans to be packaged into securities called asset-backed securities, and then for those securities to be Sold to investors because investors don't want anything that smells anything like a subprime mortgage loan, and even though these are awfully different from subprime, they just investors are so scared they're not giving any money at all to these consumer loans. So, um, so basically, what uh, uh, the Fed Treasury announcement was that the new TALF will uh, create an opportunity to uh, f- for the government to get that ball rolling, get money pouring into the um, consumer lending world, which means people like you and me might start going to school, buying cars. Are
2: they going to buy my flat screen TV?
1: This would be a perfect opportunity. This covers credit card debt, so you could put that flat screen TV on your credit card.
2: Is it just me or is this a giant shift
1: it, it seems like a dramatic expansion um you know this is one of the many things this year that this alone, if this was the only thing that happened this year, this would be the biggest transformation in the relationship between where's, the u s government but where is this
2: money coming from
1: well, uh twenty billion of the two hundred billion that was talked about as a starting point, comes from the TARP, from the $700 billion that was allocated by Congress to the Treasury. The rest is a little up in the air. I'm not quite clear on where that's coming from. Um, They say that this program won't really be launched, uh, won't be active until February. So um, I guess in a sense what they're saying is, hey, President-elect Obama... Hey, new Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner, this mm-hmm. one's your problem.
2: Okay, I'm saying to you, Planet Money Indicator.
1: Yeah, well, I I thought that our Planet Money Indicator would be 171. That okay. is the number of banks that the FDIC put on its problem list. Uh, just a few weeks ago, that number was 117. Ooh, it's now that's 171. A big jump. It's a big jump. Um, and uh, w- what that tells you is that uh what what many people have told us here on Planet Money what many economists out there say seems to be happening and what what that is is we have you know something like fourteen, fifteen thousand 15,000 banks in this country and a lot of people think by the end of all this we're going to have around 8,000 that's a lot of banks closing a lot of banks buying other banks
2: I have something that relates to that actually. It's right here on this full page ad from the New York Times today. NPR's Robert Smith pointed it out. The Bank of America has taken note of everybody, I guess, wondering how banks are doing and whether they're lending, and it has bought an entire page to tout, I guess one, two, three, four, five, twenty at ad- twenty 20- Loans it has made to various companies. It is a
1: real, you showed this to me just a few minutes ago. It's really weird. It's just this full page ad and read some of the loans. Yeah, it's,
2: uh, it's like twenty million dollars to the Alberto Sausage Company of Kent, Washington. Mm. That's in November. Another one in November. Opus One in Saint Helena, California got forty million dollars. But here's one that's way back in August two thousand eight, which as we all know is before this crisis began. Fifty million dollars to the Pennsylvania Turnpike Commission.
1: What I out. find amazing about this ad is. Bank of America, and this is expensive. I mean, how much is the full back page of the New York Times? It's a lot of zeros in that. Oh, it's not the back page, but a full page of the New York Times. It's these. This is not an ad saying, "Hey, we now have the best rates in the business," or "If you borrow with us, we'll give you this awesome toaster." What it's saying is. All it's saying is, we are doing the most basic business of right. a bank. We're a bank. <laughs> We're a bank. Like, it's like McDonald's taking a full-page ad saying, Hamburgers. there is food available in our restaurants. <laughs>
2: okay. <laughs> yesterday, yesterday, we had the first part of our interview with Neil Ferguson. He's the author of The Ascent of Money. Ferguson talked to Alex Bloomberg and described money as a relationship between a debtor and a lender and as a means of exchange – Today, Neil Ferguson answers a question we've been getting from a lot of you. Adam?
1: The question is, where, where did the money go? So everyone had these houses that were the worth, worth a lot. They had stocks that were worth a lot. They had all these assets. Where but, did it go? Where did it go? Who got it?
2: First, we're going to start with a quick distinction between money and wealth.
3: So, so if money is just the unit by which yeah. we every, everyone agrees this is the sort of universal measure, you know, token yeah. of exchange, basically, yeah. then wealth is is how much that universal token of exchange right.
4: is, is is basically worth. So it's just a measure of wealth. Mm-hmm. And when you say somebody is worth $100 billion, you're saying that their their assets are valued at that in the market today. But of course, somebody who had $100 billion of stocks a year ago, uh, currently has, you know, half that, has $50 billion because the stock market's Decline so much, so right. so in that sense, the, the the cash measure is something that can fluctuate literally every hour, right? And this is a question that I think that we get a lot
3: around here, where people write in and they say, "Where did the money go?" Right. And they're not talking about money now; they're talking about wealth. But where did the wealth go? Is is that so? Is you know, if I bought a stock in two thousand seven, it was worth a hundred dollars. Today, it's worth fifty dollars. Is it? it's gone? Is it the same as, you know, taking a pile of $100 bill, you know, $100 bill and and sort of
4: burning it up? Not quite. Uh, This this is simply a matter of of the markets changing its assessment Mm -hmm. uh, of the price of the assets. Right. Uh, And as that varies every hour, and can vary dramatically over longer periods of time, then it's not as if some... Uh, physical destruction of money takes place. Because remember, this is just the unit of account function. Right. It's the measuring function that money uh, that money performs. Right. So it's perfectly possible for the stock market to decline by 50%, for the, uh, the, the value of uh, all the quoted companies on the Standard & Poor's 500 to decline by half without some destruction of banknotes taking place. This is what people fancifully imagine. Or sometimes they imagine the money somehow goes to somebody else, usually some rather um, crafty, wily speculator, a George Soros figure who who is on the other side of of all these trades. Now, there's some truth in that in the sense that short selling uh, of stock uh, transactions whereby people effectively bet against uh, a company, bet that its stock is going to decline in price, that has played a big part in, in this recent crisis. And people have made money from the decline of the stock market. So it's not as if the money's, so to speak, wholly disappeared. There, there is a kind of reallocation going on. right? And that, that reallocation takes place in the following way. If you're the person who bought mm-hmm. uh, at the top of the market when, uh, I don't know, yeah. um, uh, Goldman Sachs shares were, were or Citibank shares were, let's say, at $30 um, and you ended up selling them to somebody else. Uh, for three dollars a year later uh, then you 've lost that money uh, because you you bought at the top and you sold at the bottom uh, and it 's perfectly possible for somebody ingenious to make that money uh, mm. to, to in a sense collect from a short sale so there 's a sense in which the decline of stocks does enrich some people but but that 's a very special case it doesn 't and it doesn 't actually the the amount of wealth
3: that was created by by short sellers is dwarfed by the amount of wealth that was lost by everybody else who Correct. was long, basically, Correct. right? So so I guess th- this is the question that I think that I wanted to to, to get to. It sounds like, so if, if wealth, and this is the thing that for me, when I first got into this, I, I began to realize this is what made me panicky, is that wealth, the, you know, in other words, value, that is a totally fickle thing. During the housing bubble, People believed that a um, you know a, a, a house in an exurb of Las Vegas was worth four hundred thousand dollars or half a million dollars or whatever it was, and by God it was worth that because you bought it and then you could sell it the next day. But then now people think it's worth two hundred thousand dollars, and that that can happen to anything. People look at a speculative bubble and they think, well, there was some sort of something wrong it was like some fault of somebody that created these conditions and there you know you, you can get into that but it, that
4: an asset any asset is just worth what people want to pay for it right. prices are set by markets by and large and markets are where buyers and sellers get together and agree and it's very much a matter of collective psychology when everybody believed in 2006 that the exurbs uh, of Las Vegas were the only place to be Um, and the prices of houses were rising at a faster rate than 20% a year, there was a a collective delusion. Uh, but that's what drove the prices up. Uh, and this is where behavioral finance is helpful. It teaches us that that human beings are actually very bad but at assessing that kind of valuation. The fundamental value of a house in the exurbs of Las Vegas didn't change between 2004, 2006, and 2008. But our assessment of, our collective assessment radically changed. There came a point right at the beginning of 2007 when buyers and sellers together said, Wait a second <laughs> oh, Wait crap. a second that can 't be right, uh, and at that point, you saw this dramatic switch from greed to fear. Uh, uh, people suddenly began to sell at discounts. the buyers refused to buy at the top whack, and with amazing speed, you went from a twenty percent per year inflation rate for house prices in the United States to a minus twenty percent uh, or very nearly certainly minus ten percent inflation rate. Now that turnaround is so dramatic that it leaves you wondering what what is there in this financial world that has any concrete meaning? If 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 the price of something as physically tangible as a house can change that much, can go up by fifty percent and then go down by fifty percent in a matter of years, then surely all is fluid. And the answer is yes, all is fluid because it's all about human psychology. But then, are you saying that there is no nothing
3: uh, permanent? That there is nothing fundamental that you can look at
4: and say, well, this. Is fundamentally worth this. Some people <laughs> retreat into the ancient world and they say only gold. Only gold can give us certainty. And, and it's interesting to see the, the revival of gold as, as, as an asset or as a store of value. At this time of uncertainty, gold leapt up above $1,000 an ounce uh, uh, not so very long ago. It's back down around 700 now. A lot of investors faced with the, uh, the upheavals of our times retreat into that, that ancient notion that only gold, that shiny metal uh, that doesn't rust, only gold is a, is a true store of value. But you know, the trouble is... Gold varies in in price. We 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 don't instinctively value anything in terms of ounces of gold. Gold's also pretty inconvenient because you you need a very small particle of gold, grain really, to buy a can of coke. Right, uh, and for all kinds of reasons, heavy. It's heavy. Um, it, it doesn't pay anything like an interest rate if you have a great big p- pile of gold. Uh, it's quite easy to have it stolen if you're carrying it around in your person. There are all kinds of reasons why gold isn't likely to make a comeback, a complete comeback. But I think what we do see is a sort of – is a craving for some kind of fundamental value in an age where, where all financial values seem to be volatile. We, we've seen a return of volatility. We actually went through a period when volatility, that is to say fluctuations in, in prices. This, this, this thing that we're talking about right now that's freaking everybody out. Right. This
3: like this. What is real? What is yeah. the actual value of anything? With,
4: with the fluctuation of of, of prices uh, of stocks and all other kinds of assets suddenly uh, wildly increasing relative to maybe a few years ago, then I think there is a kind of craving for some fundamentals, some tangibles, some unchanging, immutable values. But they're hard to find until we stop thinking in terms of money. Right. Well, Neil Ferguson, thank you so much
3: for joining us. This was
1: a wonderful, wonderful
3: conversation. My
1: pleasure. Thanks very much. Neil Ferguson is the author of The Ascent of Money and a professor of history at Harvard. We like talking to this guy so much. He's great. We insist on having him back soon. So, Neil Ferguson, be on notice.
2: All right. Now we're going to do a segment that we haven't done for a while, but it's one that we really love. It's called The
1: Economist House Call. Okay. So what we do here is we get an economist. It's Simon Johnson. He used to be the chief economist of the IMF. He now is a professor at MIT and at the Peterson Institute. And he uh, has the wonderful website that we link to all the time, Baseline Scenario. Um, He joins us to give... It's not financial advice. We just take questions from from um, our listeners like you, and we get Simon to sort of place their question in their life in a broader global economic context.
2: Today we have a house call from Renee Rico, who is a pastor of a Presbyterian church in California.
0: Well, I am wondering uh, what our economists might say about people's uh, willingness to give, because I know there are lots of churches around the country and other nonprofit organizations that are looking at this economic fallout and wondering what does that mean for them.
5: Uh, that's a great question. I think uh, that at least in the short term, uh, people are going to give a little bit less. I've been looking at some uh, list serves and talking to some people. Uh, in in various spheres who rely on donations, uh, I think that um, for activities that are really essential, you know, really helping people survive, uh, I think people will give to that. But in, in term, if there's something that that is a bit more discretionary, if if that makes sense, um, something that just makes them feel good and something they think is going to be there if they if they don't give so much money for a couple of years, I think they're going to scale back uh, their, their their donations. Uh
0: huh, um, and. So how would you – so you think, uh, like, direct service uh, organizations will probably do a little bit better than other ones then?
5: Yes. I mean, I think um, they, the, what you need to do is get a message out uh, emphasizing how essential uh, what you're doing is and, and, and showing people that you're really a, an important part of the solution and the coping strategy uh, for society. Uh, I think people may be more willing to volunteer time. They may be more willing to contribute uh, in, in, in other ways. And they might um, have more time. Well, yes, that that is absolutely true. Um, I mean, I don't think people are going to back away from their sense of community. I think, if, if anything, a crisis like this brings people together. But the question is, uh, you know, do they just want to write a check, or do they do they want to, um, you know, contribute contribute in, in in some other way and and come through this with perhaps with, with a with a with more of a sense of belonging, more of a sense of having helped out people,
2: Simon. If people. And Renee's church really do stop giving or give a lot less. Should her church or a nonprofit like her church engage in, you know, deficit spending, basically, for the short term?
5: Well, ordinarily, you might think, yes, you have to be careful, of course, in this credit environment. Deficit spending, meaning you're going to borrow money. Um, You have to look quite carefully at the terms uh, of, of those loans. Now, if someone's willing to lend to you at a reasonable interest rate, then... You know, by all means, uh, consider it. But you have to look very carefully at whether they can uh, call that loan back, whether they can make you repay early. And in fact, one of the problems that's happening just just to pick a country uh, out of the air in Russia right now is it turns out it turns out a lot of loan contracts in Russia have, are callable. So people can show up the next day. You know, they can give you a loan, show up a week later and say, oh, we'd like you to pay it back. At which point, of course, you can't pay back because you needed the money to invest in something or to run part of your business or to run your church. And so that's a big part of the reason why Russia is facing the kind of economic difficulties that it is. That That's not generally the case in the in the U.S. In the U.S., if you have a long-term loan and you know what the interest rate is over that loan, then those terms are set. But do please be very careful and make sure you have good legal advice on anything like that.
1: Laura, I wanted to ask you. You go to church on Sunday, right?
0: Yeah, we're doing our stewardship campaign right now. And that's. Most churches are right now.
1: And how's it going for your church, Lou?
0: Yeah. Uh, we just sent out the letters this week, so
1: you don't know yet. We
0: don't know yet, and yeah, big question mark.
1: What? I'm Jewish. What, what's a stewardship campaign?
0: Uh, it, it's the basically you pledge an, a certain amount for the coming year. You get you say, I'm estimating I will give you this much money uh, each month, each week, or for the whole year, so that the church can plan its budget.
1: Right. So right. it's
0: we don't have membership fees the way a synagogue might. Gotcha.
1: Uh,
2: I go to a church that has a fair amount of Wall Street wealth in it, and I would say that of the 700 or so families that are on the church's rolls, about a third make a, an annual pledge.
0: Mm-hmm. So, and, have and you, I'd say it's probably about 50% in the
1: church I'm serving at this point, so—
2: well, we're Episcopalian, so we gotta do the best we can. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and Laura, are you seeing, do you know how your church's campaign is going? You
2: know, I don't know. I that's that's the number that was last given out to us. Right now they're sort of in the pledge drive mode. So
0: Yeah, by in about a month I think most churches will know kind of where they what
1: the what the T look like. So Simon, do you think it's crucial for the future economic success of the US and the global economy to have our listeners? Pledge To their member stations. <laughs>
5: if they go to npr.org, type in their zip code, they can. Well, easily... I think it's an essential uh, service. <laughs> Adam, could they link their pledges to the stock market? Perhaps it sort of a contingent pledging strategy. I think we that have might be a big pledge
0: like that. I yeah, think I an, think. I think an inverse pledging strategy. The lower the market goes, the higher the pledge well, That would well, that's be a good very interesting now. idea
5: i mean one thing to do <laughs> of course is to say to people you know this is the interim pledge because we recognize that uh, things are very uncertain right now and while uh, we wouldn't ordinarily come back to you in three months because we know that would be tedious uh and a little bit expensive um we we will be doing that in this case because uh, we, we think that you know there's a lot of uh, pressing needs in in the community and we recognize that you need a little bit of time to decide how much to, you can give this year
1: great
5: renee thank you so much
1: uh, i do hope your stewardship campaign goes well Thank
2: you. Thanks to Simon Johnson, our economist, and to listener Renee Rico for that phone call. And keep your stories coming. Send them to planetmoney at npr.org and put economist house call in the subject line, please. Or send us
1: some other email and put something else in the subject line if you want. Anything. Anything. We, we really, really love hearing from you. And that is it for us today.
2: I'm Laura Conway. Check us out on the blog, npr.org money.
1: And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening.